From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, May 23rd. I'm Marco Werman. An emotional day for Egyptians voting in a historic election. There's a gentleman here that has got ink on his finger. He's just voted and he's, he's walking up to the armored vehicle here and he's kissing it and he's very emotional. He's breaking down and crying. We'll hear what the vote in Egypt means for the region, plus signs of an Arab spring, sort of, in Saudi Arabia. It's happening virtually through social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, through blogs. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt's historic presidential election got underway today. Some 50 million Egyptians are eligible to cast ballots in the two-day process. This is the first free presidential vote in Egypt since the ouster of longtime leader Hosni Mubarak last year. Polling is unreliable in the country, but there are 13 candidates, and the expectation is for the two top contenders to face each other in a runoff election next month. Today, the world's Matthew Bell went to the Nile Delta city of Mansoura, about 75 miles northeast of Cairo, to visit polling stations on the first day of voting. The voting has been underway for a couple of hours now here in Mansoura. There are long lines, and people are telling me that there's more excitement, there's more people here actually than in the fall when the parliamentary elections happened. I'm watching the cars pass through here, and I'm standing with an engineering student, Ahmed Abdelmajid, And, Ahmed, someone was telling me that in a previous election in 2010, actually the police here put their cars lined up and then blocked people from voting. This is a very different scene, isn't it? Yeah, it's different for you, but here it was the the usual thing that happened in in Mubarak regime, you know. They they don't allow the people to vote anymore. They only vote for Mubarak party. Anything, Anything else, it's not allowed for the people to vote. So here's the room where people actually vote, and what they're doing is coming over and getting a ballot from the judge who says that things are even busier than they were in November. People are are very excited about voting today. Uh, They're getting the ballot, going over, marking it, and then they get their finger stamped with, with permanent ink after they put their ballot into the box, meaning they've already voted. Standing just outside the, the polling area here with Assam, who is a university professor of science here yes. in Mansoura. Yes. You just voted. What was the number one issue on your mind? We need a president who will stay for, uh, for one term. We experienced Hosni Mubarak. He said at the very beginning that he will stay for one term and he spent 30 years. We, we don't want to, to create another Mubarak or to make another Mubarak because we've had from our blood, from the martyrs' blood, to uh, topple Mubarak. I've been chatting a little bit with Suzanne Ahmed Sabri, who is uh, just voted, and you've been saying that 
one of the big issues for you is justice and then and then services here in Mansoura. When I'm talking about uh, services, I'm talking about bread. It, it's very difficult for us to get bread. It's very difficult for us to get gas. And also, if I talk about services, I'll talk about transportation. It's very difficult uh, for us right now. All of these issues should be, or services, should be modified or, or be better. There's a gentleman here that has got ink on his finger. He's just voted and he's, he's walking up to the armored vehicle here and he's kissing it and he's very emotional. He's breaking down and crying. The army is great. The, ar- the army is honoring us. Anyone who is talking about the army in a bad way, he's a traitor. Anyone who's smearing the army is a traitor. Here on the sidewalk, there are some chairs set up, and I'm with a couple of women who are lucky enough to have places in the chairs to sit while you're waiting in line to vote. Can you tell me what is the biggest issue on your mind as you decide who to vote for? I just want a good man to, to rule Egypt. I want a very honest man and strong man to rule Egypt. And I'm praying for the good of the country. How did you decide who to vote for? You haven't decided yet? No, she didn't decide. I'm here with Mohammed Fahmi, who's actually a lawyer for one of the presidential candidates. You're saying that you just came from polling stations and you've seen some violations. What was the problem? Uh, what I mean by violations is that uh, all of our uh, representatives in the polling stations were kicked out uh, of the, the stations. And now I'm, I'm going to go to the highest committee to complain. So there is really the first complaints that I've heard here in Mansoura today. The first day of voting is well underway. It's the first of two days. If one of the 13 candidates doesn't get a majority, there will be a second round of voting. That comes in mid-June. But so far, generally, there's excitement. Things seem to be going quite well on this first election day. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Mansoura, Egypt. Egypt is by far the largest Arab country by population, and events there tend to reverberate throughout the region. Rami Khoury is director of the Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. Uh, Rami, what does this election in Egypt mean to the Arab world? Oh, it's an extremely uh, important, uh, symbolic and moving uh, moment. You know, Egypt uh, was the leader of so many things in the Arab world for decades and decades in, in, in military, political, culture, education, scholarship, everything. Egypt was the leader of, of the whole Arab world. And then it fell out for about 30, 40 years. It uh, became very mediocre and it was marginalized. And now it's back and, and the Egyptians did this themselves. And this really marks not just the overthrow of the Mubarak regime and the, you know, the re-legitimization of a, of a new political order, but in a way it's a kind of a rebirth for many Arabs all around the region. They, people have followed this election very closely, and it's not just a symbolism that Egypt is back and, and, and Egyptians are proud and they're electing their own president and they just elected a parliament and they're going to elect another parliament, uh, but it's a, it's, it's a feeling that this is something that might spread all across 
the Arab world, and it was homegrown. It was done by Egyptians. So there's many, many levels at which people feel uh, a lot of pride. So how are these elections being seen where you live in Beirut and Lebanon and uh, say where you're visiting today in Jordan? What are people saying? Well, they're watching it very closely. The big question that people are wondering about is who will actually emerge? And this is a great debate to have because it means you have a a real democracy where the result is not known and where actually the consent of the governed is what determines what's going to happen. Right. I mean, it's the uncertainty itself that's pretty remarkable, whereas in past elections in Egypt, the results were pretty much known before people went to the polls. Um, oh, you, absolutely. You, you, you wrote today, Rami, picking up on that, that one of the side effects of this upheaval in the Arab world is that it is the change in perceptions of Arabs themselves uh, getting away from the caricatures that many in the West kind of dabble in. Elaborate on that a bit. Well, the, because of uh, the revival of political life, uh, the revival of pluralistic politics, civil society, there's all kinds of things going on in society now, in Arab, like in Tunisia and Egypt, where it's more clear. Um, and you can see a normal society coming back into being, and one of the things this does for both people in the region, but mostly for people in the West, is it stops them from echoing the old cliches that people used to say, like, you know, the Arabs can't be democratic, or Muslims only understand violence. I mean, these kind of racist caricatures, it's like people in the 40s used to say about black people or Jews in the United States or Italians. They'd make these sweeping statements about an entire group of people that they're lazy or or that they're dishonest or that they're uh, scheming or something like that. And this is now behind us in the Arab world. Rami Khoury, director of the Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. Thank you very much, as always. Thanks for having me. Saudi Arabia is one Arab nation that hasn't seen big changes since the Arab Spring began. The kingdom's rulers are still very much in control, occasionally cracking down on dissent. The world's Anne Lopez, who most days directs our program here in the studio, was recently in Saudi Arabia. She shared her impressions with me earlier today. There actually is an Arab Spring happening in Saudi Arabia. It's happening virtually through social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, through blogs. This is a space where the young people feel free to express their opinions, their thoughts, their ideas. And as well, it offers them an opportunity to for the genders to mix where they can't do so publicly. And there's one example of this young woman that I had an opportunity to speak with. Her name is Aya Al-Sehati. And here's what she had to say about the Arab Spring. You could feel the tension in the air where everybody is trying to figure out what is the public reaction to the Arab Spring is going to be and how is the government going to react. So it was very tense in the beginning until um, things began to unfold and um, uh, the ripple settled a little bit, but there's still an ongoing gauging game where how far can you push the envelope without getting in trouble? Pushing the envelope of the Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia and Lopez, what about more daily concerns that you witnessed when you were when you were there? I mean, we're, we're always so fascinated, for example, by the rules governing men and women in Saudi Arabia. What, what was your experience? Well, my experience as a Western woman was a lot about the abaya and having to wear this cloak around me all the time mm. and whether or not I needed my head covered or not. At certain points, you needed to cover your head. If you were inside in the hotel, I didn't have to cover my head. But if I were outside in the mall, I did. And if they could tell that you were foreign, you could kind of get away with it. But apparently, I look Saudi, so 
I could have gotten into a difficult situation if they perceived me as Saudi and the religious police decided to approach me, and but that didn't happen. Did you actually see religious police? I mean, how I are did, they identified? Yes. Uh, they actually wore uniforms. Mm. They wear like brown fatigues, and they kind of look like um, military police, and they walk through the malls. They kind of patrol the malls and observe people and identify people that they think they have to approach and correct their behavior. I mean, it just sounds like it could be so confusing trying to figure out these rules and when you can wear what and why and so on. Oh, yeah. I had a borrowed abaya because I didn't have my own and I didn't buy one. Um, we had some downtime during our trip, and so I wanted to go to the gym, but it was dirty, so I washed it, and then I got dressed up in my gym clothes, completely covered, long T-shirt, long pants, but I realized as I was leaving the room, I could not leave my room Dressed without like having my abaya on. And so I had to put on my wet abaya and then go to this room, which wasn't even a real gym. They call it a makeup room. The hotel actually did have a full gym with a pool and everything for men. But for the women, they didn't have similar facilities. Now, aside from uh, exercise, you got also to a women's sporting event. What was that like? Yes, we got to see a soccer game, a league run by some young women who started it while they were in college. And now they're just finished graduating from college. They've been able to keep it going for four years, but they have to keep it under the radar. If it's if anybody hears about it and doesn't like it, then they can get shut down. So they're very, very cautious about who they speak with about it. I couldn't interview anybody individually because they were really concerned about being identified and then being stopped. Did you get a sense when you left that there is some change coming to women and women's status in Saudi Arabia? Um, you can actually see it in the abayas. There are women who are no longer wearing black abayas. They're wearing brown and gray. You might not think that that's an exciting color, but for them, it's quite groundbreaking. And yeah, there is change happening. It's A lot of people were saying that they wanted it to happen slowly because they felt that if it did happen slowly, it would take root. And so they were concerned that if they pushed too fast and too hard, that they would be a pushback, and it would slow down the progress that they already have begun to see. The world's Ann Lopez. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ann traveled to Saudi Arabia on an IRP gatekeeper editor's trip organized by the International Reporting Project. If you want to read more about Ann's trip to Saudi Arabia, check out her blog and photos at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking up to the clouds. Well, not quite that far. We're looking up to the 39th floor. That's as high as a high-rise building goes. 40 or more floors would make it a skyscraper, by the way. For our quiz today, we're looking for the three North American cities that have the most high-rise buildings under construction. Here's a hint. They're not all in the U.S. We'll even give you the first one, and you can then ponder the other two. In first place is Toronto, Canada's largest city. Now, if you haven't been to Toronto recently, you might not recognize the place. The skyline's starting to look a lot like Manhattan. It's not just the new buildings that resemble New York, so do the housing prices. Here's the world's Jason Margolis. Welcome to the new Toronto. This is a a 2,000-square-foot, two-bedroom and den uh, suite that we've got listed for $2,100,000. Real estate agent Kevin McCarthy shows me Museum House, one of Toronto's many new luxury towers. Every suite has direct elevator access. 
Um, and you step out your front door and there are world-class uh, dining and shopping and theater, art. There's everything here. Good living, if you can afford it. The penthouse goes for a cool $12 million. Amy and Chris Poole are looking for something a little more modest. They've been on the home hunt since October. They're currently living in a small rental with their two-year-old daughter. Most of their possessions are in storage. I mean, this is not our furniture. This is a furnished executive rental. I mean, this is, we want our stuff. We want to unpack, you know, our belongings. We want our home. Like, we want to plant our feet. Like, it's just Amy and Chris have lost out on four offers and backed out of three others. They say competition at open houses is so intense that they've seen things get physical. The listing agent's backed into the corner by the fireplace and someone's sitting there being quite loud saying, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to make sure we get this property. Whatever it takes... 120, 130% over asking, I'll do it, just to try to intimidate everyone. That was actually the last open house we went to because you you just walk through everyone sizing each other up, giving each other bad looks. And then you said, I'm not doing open (laughs) house anymore. Toronto prices are being driven by a perfect mix. Record low interest rates, lack of inventory, and a stable Canadian economy. Chris says he's just not willing to pay above a certain amount for a three-bedroom place. He and Amy get uncomfortable when I ask how high they're willing to go. It's over a million, but it's not too much over. That's a lot of money, and Chris is worried that he's potentially investing in a bubble that could go pop. Home prices in Toronto have appreciated about 85% over the past decade. The market took a short, moderate dip in 2008, but has marched steadily northward since then. I asked a few economists and real estate insiders where they see home prices heading in the next few years. There's no consensus. My forecast is this year probably price growth of 2 or 3%. 2013 probably a price decline of about 4%. We're penciled in around 25% price decline. We just don't know. That was Craig Alexander with TD Bank, David Madani with Capital Economics, and Phil Soper of Royal LePage Services. The 25% decline forecast is a rough estimate over several years. But that's the big fear in Toronto, and even more so in high-flying Vancouver. Is Canadian real estate at risk of an American-style collapse? Phil Soper says no. He says Toronto today is not like the U.S. a few years ago. The rate of price appreciation is much less than than you see in the United States or in countries uh, such as Ireland that had uh, real busts. The Irish situation, for example, from trough to peak, four times as great a price appreciation as we see in Canada today. Soper says the rise in home prices in big Canadian cities like Toronto has been slow and steady. Toronto is the tortoise that's moved ahead of the hare. And now, real estate in Greater Toronto is suddenly more expensive than Metro San Francisco or the New York area. Craig Alexander with TD Bank doesn't see an American-style meltdown here either. He says the U.S. housing collapse largely happened because of problems within the American banking system. At the peak of the U.S. housing bubble, uh, about 40% of all mortgages being originated were subprime loans. In other words, high-risk, high-leverage loans. Well, in the Canadian context, the mortgages are all income tested. The subprime market is probably about 3% of the total market. We aren't seeing a lot of high-risk lending going on. I suggested to Alexander that this was shaping into a far less sexy story than I envisioned. Sorry, in Canada, it's it's boring. (laughs) But not so boring to David Madani with Capital Economics. 
We use the word bubble. We're not afraid to use that word. He sees a lot of common factors between what happened in the U.S. in the 2000s and Canada today. We see the run-up in household debt, which is now almost just as high as it was in the United States. We see the same run-up in the home ownership rate, just like what we saw in the United States. And then finally, of course, we're always also seeing the overbuilding and the new home construction. And particularly, this is particularly true in the condo market in cities like Toronto. Toronto is putting up the most high-rise buildings. That's anything from 12 to 39 floors of any city in North America. Amy and Chris Poole, the young couple looking to buy a place, are well aware of all the construction in Toronto. We can, standing from our balcony there, we can see 14 cranes. Uh, you did that calculation, yeah. right? So, Chris uh, has heard the warnings that Toronto is building too much too fast, but he also knows the longer he waits to buy... So you have that one side of the argument, and then you have the other side where I'm like, maybe we are behind what London, what New York, what San Francisco is all about. Maybe this is sustainable, maybe this is the way things are going to be for a while. It's, it's hard to tell. Most economists do agree that real estate values in Toronto will almost certainly be higher in 20 years. So for a young couple looking to invest for the long term, there's really no bad time to buy. That is, if there's something they can afford to buy. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Toronto. You can see a video version of Jason's story at theworld.org and tonight on BBC World News America on many PBS stations. Now, for the rest of the answer to the GeoQuiz, we mentioned Toronto is building the most high-rise buildings of any city in North America, 132. Mexico City is in second place with 88 towers. And taking the bronze is New York with 86 new high-rises under construction. We have just enough time before the break to mention the World Chess Championships. They're happening right now in Moscow. Russia is a natural venue for the competition. Chess is dominated by Russian players, and there are more than 200 grandmasters from Russia. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that the title would go to one of them. But the title of world champion is currently an Indian's to lose. Check. Vishwanathan Anand has won that title four times already. He's a huge celebrity in India, as these kids who spoke to the BBC can attest. My favorite chess player is Vishwanathan Anand. I like him because he uses smart moves and makes the game a little interesting to see. Who's your favorite chess player? Vishwanathan Anand, because he's a good player in India. Anand's success may lie in the fact that chess originated in India. The Game of Kings was then introduced to Persia, where it became a part of the courtly education of Persian nobility. In fact, chess is still seen in some places as something of a snooty pursuit of the upper classes. And on that subject, the next installment in our series, Beyond Class, is coming up in just a few minutes. Today we focus on India's caste system and how it's changing for many Indians. This is PRI. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Some Indians in America celebrate their caste. Brahmins were not only religious people, they are also the scientists. To know that I am connected to that group of people gives a lot of pride. What caste means for Indians inside and outside India as our series Beyond Class continues ahead on the world. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The concept of social class is global, a part of human life everywhere. But the way we think of class, how it affects our lives, is very much local. Consider India, which has a caste system. Kshatriyas, Brahmins, Baniyas, Shudras, Dalits, and others, and many, many subcastes. It's far more intricate than what we in the United States are used to. In a few minutes, we're going to hear two reports on how caste is evolving, one from India, the other on Indians and their children here in the U.S. We're joined first by Anand Girdardas, author of India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking. Anand, these castes traditionally describe your function or place in society, anything from warriors to educators to people who crush oil seeds to the famous untouchables. How did all of this begin? It began the way it began everywhere in the world. Everybody had this, more or less, if you go back far enough. And it began simply enough with the division of labor. The idea that not only should you be a bricklayer and, and me a scholar, but that my child is a natural scholar and your child a natural bricklayer. The only thing that made India different, to summarize a very complicated issue, is the persistence of this system well into the modern world. Now, the point you make uh, of the trademark of caste in India being that it's passed down through generations. I mean, for the lower caste, it has to be pointed out that implied lives of misery and poverty and no possibility to rise up the social ladder, right? What has really survived in India is the idea behind caste more than caste itself. And the idea, I would say, has kind of two components. One is the idea of natural inequality. The idea that when you see inequality, what you are seeing is something that doesn't just happen accidentally to be that way, but something that in some ways ought to be that way. And the second part of it is this kind of idea of algorithmic identity, that I don't need to ask you what you like or look at your choices to get to the heart of who you are. I can just kind of put it into the algorithm based on your last name, and I can know what you eat and what you like and what you should wear and what kind of person you should marry. And that may not even be true anymore, but the idea that that's how we process people's identity remains very strong. Well, algorithms seem to be what's driving the matrimony industry all over the world. So let's hear a report specifically on marriage in India. It may prove to be one of the last holdouts for the caste system. That's what the world's Alex Galifant found out when he recently was in Chennai in South India. Good afternoon, Tamil Matrimony. This is a small store belonging to Tamil Matrimony, an Indian company that promises to help you find your spouse online. The downtown location is meant to draw in Indians who don't use or can't afford computers. You sign up in person and take home printouts of the profiles you're interested in. Find a good match and you can set up a meeting. They discuss, they like, then they get married. Easy, right? That's the founder of Tamil Matrimony, Murugavel Janikaraman. He operates a range of localized marriage sites across India, including Gujarati matrimony and Punjabi matrimony. In all, Janakaraman claims about 20 million Indians are currently using his services. The future of the country depends on its citizens. A good citizen comes out of a good parenting. Good parenting comes out of good marriage. 
And so he argues, his matrimony sites are creating a healthy future for the whole country. The model's familiar to anyone who's been online dating in the U.S. You make a series of selections to narrow down your search. The Indian matrimony sites offer countless drop-down menus covering things like eating habits, religion, income, and caste. At the Tamil matrimony store in Chennai, a young woman named Darshini looks over profiles of men with her mother, searching for the right alliance, as they say here. Based on my mother's gut feel, it should be the alliance should be set by within three months. Three months to find a husband—that's efficient. Darshini is a 24-year-old computer engineer. She's also got an MBA. In other words, she's the epitome of India's young and growing professional class. In the store, a relationship manager named Abhishek Kapoor is on hand to help out. So definitely, she's looking for somebody who is, you know, equivalent or more higher to what she is, and a person who is well settled, a person who's earning well, you know, so that she can feel secured. Darshini and her mother have also specified that her future husband should be a meat eater, that he should share her religion, and that he should be of the same caste. They belong to a particular community, so they feel that going to another community will not match their values and cultures. Is that how you feel, Darshini? Yeah. Uh, yes, most. I I prefer intercaste also, but my family does not allow it. That's typical, says relationship manager Kapoor. Families want the same caste. They don't want differences, you know. See, because in India, it's a very diverse community. You have a lot of communities, so each and every community have their way of uh, doing things. Their way of doing things—that's the argument for same-caste marriage that the company CEO Murugavel Janakaraman makes too. It's about removing friction from a relationship, simply reducing the chances of two people having uncomfortable differences of opinion. Caste as an indicator of commonality. The food, the tradition, culture. But you're mentioning only the good things. You're mentioning the food and the culture and the beauty. But caste also means deprivation and inability to. Get better jobs, things like that. No, I think that uh, nothing wrong as long as people have the understanding. The caste is only about the culture, way of doing things. Caste says Janakaraman is not about social status anymore, but that take on the system is a privilege of the few. In fact, the higher up India's social ladder you go, the easier it is to pick and choose which aspects of caste matter to you. In fact, at the very top of the ladder. You find a group that's now able to leave caste behind altogether. The new super-rich, India's millionaires, people, in fact, like Janakaraman himself. Those people, it really doesn't matter because for them, they're not really too much bothered about what my social circle. Because for them, rich and affluent is a social circle. So it's its own caste. It's a kind of caste. That's what they're talking about. Rich and affluent is a caste by itself. India's rich and affluent as a caste and a class by itself. For those people, it doesn't matter how high or lower caste they were born into; money trumps everything. But for others, and for the modern India that sites like TamilMatrimony.com are claiming to build, caste remains a fundamental force. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, Chennai. Here in the U.S., you might not find many super rich Indians, but you're unlikely to find super poor Indians either. Most Indians who settle here belong to the more privileged castes, Brahmins, for instance. Traditionally, they were religious leaders in India. Today, many of them are doctors, scientists, and scholars. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has our story on what it means to be a Brahmin in the U.S. My caste has never meant much to me or my family back home in India. We are Brahmins. 
But long before I was born, my family abandoned religion and with it, caste. We don't follow any Brahmin rituals and most marriages have happily crossed caste barriers. Here in the US, I've thought even less about caste. I assume this was true for most Indians living here. Because this ancient social system could hardly have any relevance in a young country like the US. So when I learned about an organization for Brahmins here, I was intrigued. Om Sharma is a scientist with Johnson & Johnson and the president of a group called Brahman Samaj of North America. When I visit him at his home in Skillman, New Jersey, he's starting an hour-long ritual of worshipping a range of Hindu gods. It's a ritual that the scriptures require Brahmins to perform every day. Sharma grew up in a religious Brahmin family in the western Indian state of Rajasthan. But as he grew up, he let that lapse until about two decades ago, when he moved to the United States with his wife and son. I noticed here a lot of us Brahmins don't carry our Hindu values. We do not know a lot about our scriptures. So that's why I became interested and for the last uh, several years I have been doing this religiously in the sense of do every day. Religiously in all senses. Sharma regularly studies Hindu scriptures. He says it helps him connect to his roots and fulfill his duties as a Brahmin, as a teacher of Hindu values. This is Brahmin's job. It's his or her responsibility to study our scriptures and spread that message. Now, I understand an immigrant's need to connect to his or her roots. Here in the US, I cling to my culture too. But when it comes to the caste system, I still view it as discriminatory and outdated. Surely nostalgia doesn't justify perpetuating it. I asked Sharma, having an organization called the Brahman Samaj of North America, is that excluding people of other castes? Brahman Samaj of North America is not caste-based organization. We have number of members. If we go by last name or caste system, they are Agarwal, Saxena and other castes. So if you're an Agarwal, Saxena, or of any other non-Brahmin caste, you can join the group. Sharma tells me that's progress. He says he's had to push through a more liberal policy over the objections of conservative members who wanted to keep it strictly Brahmin. I couldn't help thinking that this is a quintessentially expat group. Its members had enjoyed a certain status back in India. Here in the US, their caste didn't matter anymore. Still, most members belong to an older generation and they've had trouble attracting new recruits. I decided to talk to some younger Brahmins who aren't part of Sharma's organization, like Nilanjan Sarangi. Sarangi moved to the U.S. with his wife and son about four years ago. I met up with him at a Hindu temple in Baldwin, New York. He was there with family and friends to celebrate his 13-year-old son's Upanayan, or sacred thread ceremony. It's a coming-of-age ceremony held only for Brahmin and other upper-caste boys. Now, I'd never attended one of these ceremonies before. My family didn't bother to hold them for my brother or cousins. And I'd secretly imagined that the ceremony brainwashed impressionable young boys into thinking within the narrow walls of their caste. But I felt comforted by the smells and sounds inside the temple. They felt familiar, just like festivals and weddings back home. And as the priests guided the family through the ceremony, I learned that the message 
was about how to conduct yourself well in the world by valuing respect, humility and knowledge. Knowledge being a key part of the Brahmin identity. The boy's father Nilanjan Sarangi sat on the floor beside his son chanting mantras and performing the same rituals that his father had once performed with him. To Sarangi, this was about carrying on a centuries-old tradition, not about establishing a social status for himself in his adopted country. He tells me he would never consider joining a Brahmin organization. I don't want to like wear my Brahmin identity on my lapel, no. It is very personal, very individual thing to me. But belonging to a caste charged with specific roles in society does have meaning for him. If you go back to the Hindu religion, the Brahmins were not only religious people, they are also the scientists. To know that I am connected to that group of people, you know, it gives a lot of pride. But what about his son, the 13-year-old Nilabro, growing up in suburban America? I try to understand what my dad says and by what he says and what we are, which is Brahman is um, one of the categories of people who were very intelligent and most of them were teachers, doctors now. So I really feel proud. Will his pride make this teenager far from India more caste conscious than he'd otherwise be? And what about his friends here at the ceremony? I asked the mother of one of them, Gauri Ghosh. Her family belongs to a different caste. She says caste means little to these kids. For us, we know that, oh, your last name is this, so you are a Brahmin or not. For them, it doesn't really matter because they don't even know. The question is whether they'll ever know as they grow up here in a culture where caste is irrelevant. I've spoken with many other Brahmins in the U.S. And caste is an important part of their identity. For most, it's even played a role in their career choices. This has made me reflect on my own upbringing. Was it, after all, a little Brahmin-like? Sure, my father disapproved of the caste system, but he also disapproved of his kids going into careers in business. Instead, he guided my brother and me towards classic Brahmin fields, education, medicine, science. And so, here I am, working as a journalist in the U.S., making my parents proud for picking a career that just happens to be Brahmin-like. Now, I'll never join a caste-based organization or even put my kids through any ceremony. But I wonder if I'll teach them values that overlap with Brahmin values. And if so, would that be bad? So long as it doesn't make my children look down on others, and so long as it doesn't hinder others' chances of moving up the social ladder. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Writer Anand Girdardas is still with us. Anand, as an Indian-American born in this country to Indian parents, what does the caste system mean to you and your Indian-American friends, if anything? I have to say, for me, it is just something whose demise I'm waiting for. I don't share the view of some of the folks that you interviewed who think about it as a lovely thing of community and culture and identity. I think that's the way people talk when they're on the privileged end of things. Mm. Uh, I think it's something that has been India's great tragedy. It's just a massive misallocation of talent. It Mm. means that all people are in the wrong spots. Part of what is beginning to work in India today, the reason you're seeing the dynamism in India today is in my mind not because of foreign investment and all these other things. It's actually because we've started to make progress on getting people in the right spots. And that is the undoing of caste. And thank God for that. Anand Girdardas is the author of India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking. Anand, thanks for speaking with us. 
Thank you. And there's much more from that conversation at theworld.org. That's also where you can see photos of the people featured in today's stories. And check out some of the other stories in our series, Beyond Class. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Goat Rodeo. Follow cellist Yo-Yo Ma and friends on a musical journey full of lively, unscripted bluegrass melodies. Friday, May 25th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. China's leaders have ample reason to want to change the subject from a slowing economy and political scandals in this year of leadership transition. Appealing to nationalist sentiment often works. So this month, China's launched a three-month campaign to crack down on illegal foreigners. And the state-run media have ramped up criticism of foreigners in general, especially those who make China look bad. But as the world's Mary Kay Magstad reports, one TV anchor went overboard. China has spent billions of dollars trying to improve its international image. That includes producing English-language television programs like this one for broadcast overseas. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. I'm Yang Wei. Senior late leader Deng Xiaoping says... Yang Rei is the suave anchor of a state-run public affairs program. A recent guest was Oxford historian Timothy Garton-Ash, and the topic was whether democracy was appropriate for China. Yang Rei said perhaps not, because the poor would attack the rich. Garton-Ash countered that Britain hasn't had a violent revolution since the 17th century, precisely because debate is allowed, civil debate. When you have just people just sounding off anything they like, it often becomes quite abusive. And so we have to try and find a culture of civility in which we can speak openly about our differences. Yes, indeed. We're watching dialogue with Professor Timothy Gattanash with Oxford University. Yang Rei seemed to agree. Ironic, then, that just a few days later, he sent a message that was anything but civil to his 800,000-plus followers on Weibo, China's version of Twitter. He praised the current crackdown on illegal foreigners in China, saying it's good to sweep out the foreign trash. Then he added, quote, People who can't find jobs in the U.S. and Europe come to China to grab our money, engage in human trafficking, and spread deceitful lies to encourage emigration. Foreign spies seek out Chinese girls to mask their espionage and pretend to be tourists while compiling maps and GPS data for Japan, Korea, and the West. We kicked out that foreign bitch and closed Al Jazeera's Beijing bureau. We should shut up those who demonize China and send them packing. The Al Jazeera correspondent Yang Rei calls a foreign bitch is Melissa Chan. She's a respected Chinese-American journalist who was known for tackling tough stories here. She just became the first foreign correspondent to be kicked out of China in 14 years, although Al Jazeera's bureau was not closed. Chan said on an Al Jazeera program that her expulsion seems to be a sign of the times. There is a very interesting Chinese saying, which is that you kill the chickens to scare the monkeys. And in this case, I may have been the sacrificial chicken to warn other foreign journalists from looking at sensitive stories. It is a sensitive year for China's leaders, with a leadership transition looming, economic growth slowing, resentment over income disparity and other unfairness growing, and the mess of the Boshilai scandal yet to work through. Playing the nationalist card to rally support in troubled times has worked in the past. And this time, a couple of videos of individual foreigners behaving badly have been making the rounds online, garnering many an indignant comment. 
But other Chinese refused to generalize. Sixteen-year-old Liu Zijing says she doesn't see why the current crackdown on foreigners is necessary. She says there are good people and bad people everywhere, and in my school, the foreign teachers are really good people. She's walking in Sanlitun, one of the neighborhoods where bars are plentiful and foreigners often gather. A migrant worker named Li Sheng Li, who collects trash for recycling here, has a reaction more in line with Yang Ray's. He says, we're being too good to the foreigners, so they're being arrogant. It's like in a personal relationship, if you treat someone too well, they'll walk all over you. But if you're tough, they'll learn to behave themselves. Kind of makes you wonder about his personal relationships and about how the recent amped-up criticism of foreigners here squares with the Chinese government's efforts to improve China's image in the world. An easy answer might be that China's leaders care more these days about sentiment at home. But even at home, there's only so far a good old-fashioned propaganda campaign will get you, now that half a billion Chinese are online and growing more media-savvy. While Yang Rei got some support for his nationalistic tweets, there were also online comments like, Ha ha, so Yang Rei is really this big a dumbass, pretending to be cool, but actually a boxer. As in, the Boxer Rebellion, an anti-foreigner rampage at the turn of the last century. Yang Rei later tweeted that it's important to stand up to foreigners, but not to be boxers. After all, the party wants stability and support, not a revolution of any kind that could get out of hand. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Finally today, we're going to spend some time with a master of a musical instrument called the cajon. The instrument is basically a wooden box that you sit on. It started out as a substitute for African-style drums forbidden to slaves in Peru. Producer Mitra Taj sent us an audio portrait of a master percussionist who's been banging on his cajon for more than 50 years. My name is Alex Acuña, but my real name is Alejandro Neciosup Acuña. I come from a family of musicians. Uh, we were 11 children, six guys and five girls. And uh, all we knew how to do was play music. I knew what I was going to do when I was seven years old. I used to play soccer. I still play. <laughs> but um, one day after a big match, I told both teams, seven-year-old boys, you guys would like to come to my house. I have a lot of percussion that we can play. Because I thought that playing music was the same as playing soccer. And they all say in unison, say, no, we don't know how to play. That's when I look up to the heaven and said, ha, ah. that's when I know. I like to have fun when I play. Music is not that serious, you know. If I play cajon right now, it will be different than yesterday. If we play cajon tomorrow, it will be different. It's always going to be different because it's inspiration, is uh, improvisation.
we Peruvians, when we play our music with the cajon, it's really special. It's really special. It's really powerful. It's the real thing. Because we also have our own voice, our own instrument, our own heritage, our own musical culture in this beautiful country. Our audio portrait of Alex Acuna was produced by Mitra Taj. By the way, the world's Alex Galifant and Ritu Chatterjee, whose reports on India's caste system you heard earlier, are holding a live web chat today. They'll discuss how the concept of caste is changing, or not, and what it means for Indians living here in the U.S. Join them starting at 5 p.m. Eastern at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Online at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.